Busy Birds. Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Ganal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. Did you know that long-term business planning helps business leaders to think differently about their company's direction? It can also help companies plan for legislation that are changing in the future and help the company to plan ahead. Our guest today is a partner at EY Minas Clean Energy and Sustainability Services team. He has over 25 years of experience in the management consultancy. Crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Gus Shalikens. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Gus, how did your sustainable journey actually start? I guess from an early age, I spent a lot of time in nature. I grew up in Greece, so my mother had three sons, didn't know what to do with them, so kicked them out into the garden. And most of the summers we spent on the beach. So actually much of my free time was spent outdoors in nature. So Gus, you are currently a partner at EY, where you address the integration of sustainability into long-term business strategy and growth plans. What exactly does that mean? What it means is I'm trying to educate companies on the point that to survive and be viable going forwards, they need to change their business model. What's worked in the past will not continue to work in the future. And therefore, what I'm trying to do is raise awareness that there is a lot of knowledge, information and insight available that they can use to enhance and improve the way they think about their strategy the way they organize their business, the way they deal with suppliers and customers, and also reduce their impact on the planet, particularly in areas that previously haven't been measured or they haven't had a cost in relation to those areas. Wow, some task it is. (laughs) So sustainability has actually been such a hot topic in the last few years. More and more companies are becoming more aware of their own sustainability as like a company. Is this something that you have experienced as well? And if you can kind of elaborate on that. I I think what you describe, we've seen a lot of, certainly in Europe and to some extent in the US and other parts of the world, the, the MENA region where I'm based, and I focus on the Gulf countries, but also the surrounding countries here in the Middle East, I think the the progress has been a bit slower and the story isn't as widespread yet. Companies are still very much focused on the short term. They're still very much focused on doing the same thing they did last year, which worked for them and gave them the results. So there's no need to change in their mind. And certainly for the Gulf countries, which have oil and gas reserves, the luxury of having lots of money to spend your way out of problems has meant that they haven't really had to worry about sustainability. So very simply, if you look at electricity and water prices in the region here, in most countries, they're heavily subsidized and therefore people don't think about how much they use of of either water or electricity at the end of the day. And that stopped the thinking also at a business level from focusing on changing the way they do business or measuring costs that they're incurring because it doesn't matter. 
And I feel especially here in the MENA region, we have a lot of expats obviously living here like you and I. So a lot of people don't necessarily want to make those long-term decisions because, you know, as a company, you want to show the best profits and you want to kind of have that reputation as like being the guy that like made so much money for this company. So it becomes harder to make the decisions long-term when you are kind of running the company and you're not really going to stay in this country or company even for a long period of time. So how has that also contribute to what you guys are doing and trying to do with long-term? You you touch on an important point, and it's I think it's one of a number of, of drivers that's sort of slowing the journey down in this region. Although I must say we have had some very good successes with some organizations in the region who do get it and who recognize it's a strategic opportunity for them and have therefore moved ahead very, very quickly to get an advantage over their competitors. So there are companies that are that are doing extremely well in the area of sustainability. There's a couple of points I think we, we should touch on uh, to answer your question. The first one is there isn't always an appreciation of how to measure quality. And in the absence of that knowledge, people focus on price. And therefore, for many companies, the cheapest is often the best solution for them. But the cheapest one will also come with other consequences, environmental, social, etc. Your point around short-term Profits is an important one because everybody wants to look good and everyone's ambitious. This is a region of traders that goes back thousands of years. People are used to trading and they want a good deal. And therefore, in pursuit of that good deal, you know, they will focus on what they need to do to make sure the number this year is bigger than the number last year. From a, a, an individual point of view, the transient nature of the population in the Gulf region is very important. You and I, if we're asked whether we want to spend thousands and thousands of dollars putting a solar panel array on our villa or our, our rooftop, we'll probably not do it because we know we're leaving in a couple of years. So why would we invest? And it's it's one of the challenges of the region, which is the, the concept of home. For lots of people who are not nationals of the countries here, this region is never really home. And therefore, it creates, creates a sense of uh, impermanence that then influences your behavior on a day-to-day -day basis. What, what's also very interesting is a lot of the nationals who are here from overseas will come from countries where actually sustainability is front and center. And there's lots of regulations and requirements. And as soon as they're in their home country, they behave perfectly like model citizens. And when they come here where there's not as much regulation and not as many rules and not as many consequences, they're then happy to behave like they're on holiday and behave very differently. So there's still a lot we can do individually to change the, the understanding of sustainability and also some of the physical consequences just through our own behavior. Yes, definitely. I feel that's a, that's a very important thing. And if we start doing that in our day-to-day -day lives, whether it's at home, we might be able to actually bring that to work as well. So when we talk about companies and when a company want to make more sustainable choices, it is often believed that it comes like at higher cost to this company because your initial investment costs are quite high. Well, in some cases it's not, but often what they would do is they won't move forward in such because now it's, it's really an investment that they need to make. So what would your advice be to some of these companies that are looking into making more sustainable choices at the moment? 
It, it's a question I face every day, probably in every conversation I have with, with every company I meet. There is no regulation. There's nothing that forces companies to do anything in this area at the moment, in most of the countries in the region. And there's no consequence if they don't do anything. So there's no penalty they need to pay or anything. So then the response uh, when I talk to them is, Gus, why should I spend money on something I don't need to do? You're just reducing my profits. That plus, you know, the, the fact that human beings don't like change. So if you're a CEO of a company and you've been extremely successful and everyone tells you you're very successful for the last 20 years and you've always been doing what you've been doing and suddenly a consultant shows up and tells you you need to change what you're doing because it's not the right thing to do, you're going to push back. You don't like change. In terms of overall costs, I mean, a, a great example is in relation to, to buildings. You can compare a traditional building with a green building, and a, by green building, I mean a building that takes into account sort of environmental, social, economic factors uh, and design principles based on one of the rating systems, let's say. A building will have an upfront cost of uh, land construction, sort of uh, commissioning, and then making it available for, for use, and then a lifespan and an operational cost over that lifespan. And then maybe at the end, there's a demolition cost and, you know, replacing it, etc. One of the things that works against sustainability and also a number of other areas is the fact that you've got different players and actors at each stage of the life cycle. So the guy who designs the building and the architect get paid up front and that's it. And then there's no consequence for them later on. The ones who build it, again, they build it. They want to build it as cheaply as possible. So they have the highest margin and then they hand it over and they walk away. The owner or the, the one who maintains it and operates it then gets left with a building with certain running costs going forward for the next 20, 30, 50 years. There's this break between each of these different stages of the building, which reinforces an approach of only looking for the short term at the costs. So everyone is trying to minimize their costs for the short term. With a green building, if you spend a little bit more upfront, actually the running costs are substantially lower. And therefore, the total lifetime costs of the building are substantially lower as well. But because the guys at the beginning don't benefit from the reduction in operating costs, there's no incentive for them to do anything up front to take this into account. It's also sometimes uh, an issue of knowledge. People are not aware this exists, and therefore they will just do what they've always done. For buildings, you know, my suggestion would be we need something which is much more integrated over the whole lifespan of the building, recognizing there's different owners and stakeholders at different points in time finding ways to capture money, and maybe finding ways to reward the individuals who are involved at the beginning for some of the savings that accrue later on. Now, that's going to be complicated and tricky, but we've got things like blockchain and we've got, you know, all sorts of interesting developments coming out that could very accurately identify, capture and record what people are owed. And then we've also got much more advanced measurement systems to show what savings are actually made. It's not just the people in the, the chain that would benefit. I mean, it's also the community. If you live next door to a building that's a green building and it's well-designed and it doesn't need as much maintenance, it's not going to be an eyesore. It's not going to be a, a problem for the community within which you live. You're going to have tenants who are there. It's not going to be empty, etc. So actually, there's a wider ripple effect, uh, a benefit as well, for the community within which the building is based. That's just one example. I mean, it, it applies to everything. Every aspect of a business can be looked at through that lens. If you have a short-term view, and if you're driven by metrics that don't include social, economic, and environmental factors, you're always going to make traditional decisions that drive us further down the path of where we're going at the moment. And part of what your team is doing as well 
is to help companies by creating simulations of like the financial information of social and government's information into in company reports that help the organization to kind of understand this true cost of this company's activity on the environment, the economy, as well as the society, like what you mentioned. So what would be the process behind a simulation like this? I mean, the first step is to convince someone they need this, because otherwise the response, as I said, will be, you know, Mariska, no one's forcing me to do it. There's no consequence. So why should I do it? Why should I distract my team from doing the business? What's happened in the last couple of years, even in the region here, which is great, is there are many companies who are already reporting on their non-financial performance. There's nothing like peer pressure in the region here. If someone next door is doing something, then, you know, someone else gets anxious and they feel they're being left out, the fear of missing out, and therefore they want to produce something as well. The other thing that's uh, appeared in the last couple of years are things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which all of the governments in the region have signed up to, and the governments are now beginning to trickle that down through the economy. The other factor is uh, the investor community. So as companies here in the region begin to stray beyond the region and begin to list in, let's say, Europe or the US or, or other places, they're coming up against requirements for reporting from financial institutions, from stock exchanges that force them to up their game and start looking at this. And then the final pressure, I think, is, you know, people like you and I, the, the sort of society who are saying, I don't want to work for you, or I'm not going to buy your, your shares or your products, or what's your sustainability performance before I buy something from you? So it's important to mention these because these have to be there to put pressure on companies to say, okay, maybe we should do something about this. When they get to that point, the conversation I have with them is, okay, the first thing is you need to define what does sustainability mean for you? So if you're making shoes, that's very different to a plastics company, that's very different to an oil and gas company or an airline or something else. So what is the definition of sustainability for you? What's material for you? Once we understand that, we can then go and collect information from within the company and also from supply chain and stakeholders and get some feedback and build up a picture and say, what do you look like at the moment when we look through a non-financial lens? What's your environmental performance like? What's your social performance, your economic performance life? Most of them will have financial accounts, and that's traditionally what they've relied on to represent the company. What's changed over the last 40 years is that the, the value of a company is increasingly intangible. And what I mean by that is the financial accounts no longer really reflect the value of a company. So for a CEO or a chairman or the MD, what's very important is how their company is perceived externally. 80% of that value is intangible and they're not reporting on that. They have a tough time getting that message across to stakeholders. And if there are regulations imposed by governments, you know, at some point in the future, and they have no idea where they are at the moment in terms of what they're doing, where they're doing, how they're doing, they will have to scramble to make sure they don't fall foul of those regulations. So the, the process starts with a definition. Uh, we then collect lots of data. We then look at what that looks like. We might do some peer comparisons. And then we pick a standard against which to report, which again gives the report some credibility. And then they have a document that they can publish online, hard copy, they can promote uh, through their public relations and, and comms team. And uh, they have a story to tell in the non-financial space, which then puts them on a par with lots of other companies in other parts of the world who are already doing this, for whom it's normal business. 
Some regions, of course, have gone a step further. They've been pushing the concept of integrated reporting. South Africa, for example, was an early pioneer with that. France as well. And that's where you're really telling a, a blended story, a financial and a non-financial story as part of a single report. I don't think we'll go there very quickly in the region here, mainly because most companies are still very secretive about their financial performance and don't want to disclose everything. Yeah. Non-financial performance, I think they're more open if I can get them across that first sort of uh, hurdle of saying, hmm, maybe we need something in this space. Then once they've produced it, they're usually very proud of it because they, they see it as a, a great tool to promote themselves, perhaps even to win work in the market. And some then go on to the next step, which is to look at particular projects or locations that they've got and do a much more detailed analysis of the social, economic uh, and environmental impact uh, that they're having, positive and negative. Based on that impact assessment, but also based on the report, there's then opportunities to look back into your business and to say, what could we do better? Where are we wasting money? How can we operate more efficiently? We've just never looked through the at the business through this lens before, and therefore we've not seen that actually what we're doing doesn't make sense. And I think the moment these companies actually realize that, you know, there is a financial incentive somewhere along the line, it actually makes it more attractive to do more and go ahead. There's three drivers typically. One is saving money. And I've not met anybody who's not interested in listening to me when I talk to them about saving money. Everybody wants to save money. The other one is being better at managing risks. And there are many risks in the world these days. A lot of them are environmental. If you look at the, the most recent World Economic Forum report, the Global Risks Report, you can see that I think four out of the top 10 risks that keep CEOs awake at night around the world are environmental ones. So that helps. So managing risks, because when something happens, it's expensive. So it costs the money. So in a way, I'm saving the money again because they're managing their risks and they're avoiding the consequences. The third area is around making money because, you know, the world is changing and they need to differentiate and be innovative. And there might be labeling requirements to say, you know, where your products are coming from and what the ingredients are. And then finally, government regulation, which is, you know, it's a risk, but it's a huge area in its own right. And they need to prepare for that. And this is a great tool to allow them to prepare for it, which nothing else that they're doing will equip them for. Exactly. And when you look at like governments, the regulations that they've got, the ban on single use plastic items is something that has been popping up all over. We've just had Dubai airports actually saying from 1st of Jan 2020, they're banning it. And we've also had China that kind of stopped receiving everyone's trash and their recycling items. And this had such a big impact mm. on a lot of companies. There's even companies that went out of business or is going to in the near future if they don't adopt something, you know, and also places that is stuck with so much recycling piles that they just don't know what to do with it also sometimes sitting with a product now that you can't sell, that you've been manufacturing for years and years. So how has this affected companies' long-term strategy now? I think in the region, not everybody has given it enough thought yet. I think the momentum behind single-use plastics is, is great. And we've had some, you know, shocking videos and documentaries and things that have really highlighted the problem. For many people, waste is something that you and I produce we put it in a, a bin, we put it outside and it disappears. I don't know where it is, but I don't see it. And therefore life is fine. Mm -hmm. And therefore it's, it becomes someone else's problem. And that's been the same in many, many countries around the world. 
what China did was to highlight, you know, the, the millions of tons of plastic waste that ended up in China and the mountains that we were creating there, you know, so that we could all continue to exist and pretend everything was all right. The Philippines recently did the same thing. They sent some waste back to Canada. It's like the, the costs that are not measured at the moment. So we sell lots of cars and we pollute the air, but no one until recently has started looking at infant mortality and, you know, health problems and things like that as a result of, of cars and roads being built next to homes, for example. So what's not measured isn't sort of taken into account. Waste is one of these areas, again, which uh, until recently was invisible. With China closing its um, borders, there is a worry that you just end up deflecting it into other Asian countries, and that's happened. There's the same with electrical waste ending up in Africa and things like that, that, you know, if, if I can't sell you waste, I'll find someone else that I can sell still sell waste to and they'll take it and then problem solved because it's still not here. It's not my problem. I, th I think we need a, a much more fundamental change. Um, Single-use plastics is great. I'd like to extend it further to something like single-use packaging. So beyond plastic, plastic is bad and we certainly shouldn't produce more plastic. We should try and try and limit the amount we produce and we should try and find more uses for existing plastic that we've got. And there's some great schemes that have popped up around the world to deal with existing plastic waste that could be multiplied and encouraged around the world. But I think we need to look more at the whole packaging uh, situation and to also look at lifestyles and behaviors. I mean, if you really want to make changes, yes, we will always produce waste of some sort. So you always need to collect it. You always need to sort it. You always need to treat it. You need to dispose of it. You might recycle it, etc. That That's fine. But... We also need to change society's approach for how we think and what we ask for and what we expect. I don't need every apple to be individually wrapped when I buy an apple. You know, I'm happy to just have a loose apples in my basket that I, that I take home, for example. What we expect in shops, in restaurants, etc. Some of the packaging that we get, you know, most of my waste is packaging, single-use packaging. Much of it probably isn't recycled. It's a cost to the company that's trying to sell you things as well. Yes, it keeps other companies in business who produce this, but is that really needed? Because they're using resources, they're creating something which is then becoming a burden somewhere else and there's no practical use for it. So this takes us into the realm of circular economy and things like that, where we really start looking at the system as a whole. What I'd love to see is more countries or even cities beginning to try and adopt the circular economy concept. And we're starting to have some conversations with um, communities here in the region, which would be fantastic and really exciting. And the great thing about the region here is if they make a decision on something like that, because it's fairly autonomous, once they decide, that's it, it happens. And you don't have a lot of difficulties of further discussions and perhaps uh, regulations and red tape and things like that that you need to get through in other countries here. When a decision is made, you can move ahead fairly quickly. So we'll see. But yeah. the, the pendulum is shifting. There's enough focus there. My worry is that, you know, unless the focus is maintained, something else will pop up and then people will be, be distracted and look at something else instead of continuing on this, uh, this journey. I definitely hope that there is some changes coming. And we recently had a survey that was done by so many of the residents of the UAE asking, you know, whether they should charge or ban single-use plastic and especially the bags. So I'm excited to actually see where this is going to lead to, whether it's going to lead to a ban or taxation. Hopefully in the future that can lead to many more things. So it's at the moment we're just hanging and waiting to see. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I think it's important to look far and wide because, I mean, the, there's an interesting field of study called behavioral economics, 
which has been looked at for many years, in some cases for, for political use, but also for little practical reasons. And what that tries to do is to nudge you to do something different without you perhaps consciously realizing you're doing something different. So a very simple example years ago was when cash points or ATMs were first introduced. People would put their card in the machine and they would forget to take their card home. So they'd have lots of cards that were held by the machine. You'd have to go to the bank and get your card back. And the reason that happened was because, because you put your card in. Why do you put your card in? Well, you're going to get money from the machine. You type in your code, you say how much money you want, the money comes out, you take your money, I've got my money so I can go. And you forget that you've put your card in. So what they did is they swapped the order. Now, before you get your money, you have to retrieve your card and put it in your wallet. And then you take your money out and then you can go. But of course, you've gone to the ATM thinking, I need money. And that's the only thing you're thinking about. So everybody left their card. So that little switch makes sure that the number of cards that are forgotten has reduced significantly. You can do the, exactly the same thing around a whole range of sustainability areas as well. It doesn't have an impact on you. It doesn't affect you adversely or negatively, but it encourages more of the right result. So there's, there's lots of interesting work happening in the US and the UK around this that could be applied to the whole area of sustainability as well by companies, by governments, by communities, and you know by ourselves as well, consciously saying, right, I'm going to do it this way instead of that way. Very interesting. I'm a scientist by background, so I, I like new developments. I like information, data, things like that. I'm, I'm really excited about all the thinking and new ideas that have come out over the last 10 years, let's say, around sustainability. Before that, it was really the preserve of the, the scientists, the nerdy scientists who did you know, amazing work in the lab, and none of it really made it out into the real world. What we've seen in the last 10 years, I think, is a lot of that being translated into a narrative that business and government can engage with, some very strong organizations being set up, beginning to have some significant impact uh, on decisions that are being made by business and government. Obviously, Europe, the US have led the charge on this because it's, it's a more structured society. But certainly through some of the work that we've done here at EY globally, we've also seen that other regions of the world are beginning to take notice and realize this is the way they have to go and they're beginning to catch up. It's slow. My only worry is, you know, we need to pick, we need to change gears. We need to pick up the pace a bit and do more. Some of the recent uh, information about ice melting in Greenland and all of that just shows that things are accelerating very, very quickly. We don't have that much time, you know, and if we remain focused on, on the old economic narrative, you know, we could be pedaling too far down the wrong road before we realize we've gone the wrong way. Definitely. And I think we're kind of the last generation that can actually do something about this. So we definitely need to take that to our advantage and actually make a change. Otherwise, you know, we're going to sit with an ocean that's going to have so many dead zones. We're going to not be able to enjoy nature as we used to. And it's kind of all going to be our responsibility. And we're going to be the ones that's going to suffer because I feel the environment will take care of themselves. They, it's, it might take hundreds and thousands of years for the planet to actually sort, sort itself out. We might not be there then because we've stole our futures. There's a very interesting book on that subject called The World Without Us, which was published a while back. And it, it's a hypothetical example that what if overnight the human race was wiped out? What would happen to the world? And it works out, you know, exactly how the world would regenerate itself. And your point's accurate. I mean, the world doesn't need us. You know, we're, we're sort of a cancer on the world at the moment in terms of the impact we're having, certainly now with our lifestyle. But it's an interesting read to, to see how actually the world would bounce back fairly quickly. 
it's, again, an important source of information that's out there to make us wake up, hopefully, and to realize we do need to do something differently. Otherwise, I mean, the only thing that's left of the world in, in some ways potentially is just the videos of things that we've taken years and years ago, which no longer exist. And so, Gus, what would you say has been one of your most important decisions that you've made around Mama Earth? The jump really to focus full time on sustainability consulting. So my background was uh, as a tax consultant before for many years, advising companies on uh, tax consulting matters. I then was a management consultant and I did all the usual IT implementations, business strategy, transformation type projects. And then about 12 years ago, I decided, no, you know, this, this is not the right thing to focus on. I need to make, make the jump. And then being able to make the jump within a big organization. Uh, I worked with PwC before I joined EY, and that's a great platform from which to, you know, begin to have this dialogue with companies and to try and have an impact on the world. So, Gus, we are going to move into our final five. What is one social media account or publication that you follow? I'm afraid I don't have one. I have loads. I have loads. I sign up to lots of stuff. Like I said, I'm a scientist. I like lots of data. And I also like to see reporting from different angles. So everything from uh, the usual social media channels to, you know, more well-known news publications, scientific journals, original research, things like that. So I read very, very widely. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? I hope that um, we can have more examples of countries like, uh, for example, Costa Rica, that has really made amazing strides in the direction of becoming sustainable and low impact. Human nature means that you need an example before you sometimes believe something is possible. We've got loads of examples out there. And let's have more and more countries sort of pledge and sign up to do exactly what Costa Rica and some other countries have done, even some of the Scandinavian countries. It is possible. It, it's not going to make it a miserable life. And the more countries we can sign up to take that path, the more hope we have for, for turning things around at the moment. And what advice can you give our crazy birds this week to help out Mama Earth? I guess every individual makes a difference. So whatever you can do will help. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people not yet on a sustainable journey? That's a tough one. I don't know. I guess usually it's highlighting something that's relevant to their personal situation. So you need to understand where the individual's from, what their circumstances are, what company they work for, and then you share something with them about their industry or their job or something that they didn't know. It needs to be something fairly close to them because otherwise they can just brush it off and they don't pay attention. So you need to do a bit of uh, digging and a bit of research before you meet people so that you've got something to hand. Cool. And where can people actually find you? Pretty much anywhere. I do spend a lot of time traveling because I have a regional responsibility, but uh, I'm on LinkedIn. It's my main sort of business platform. Otherwise, I speak a lot in the news uh, at conferences as well. Um, I publish reports, so you can Google me and you can get hold of me fairly easily, I think. Cool. Well, we'll link some of those items in the show notes. So, Gus, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. I'm sure our crazy birds have learned a thing or two from you. Good luck with everything that you and your team are doing. And let's hope for some more change in this region. Thanks, Mariska. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks, everyone. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode at mamaearthtalk.com. Follow at Design by Mariska on Instagram or email hello at mamaearthtalk.com. And let me know if there's a topic you'd like me to talk about. 
I love hearing from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every Monday. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.